Hello and welcome to How We Got Here, a podcast between Nondoc Media and FKG Consulting. I'm Trace Savage, editor and co-owner of Nondoc.com, a journalism website based here in Oklahoma City. And I'm here with Brian Freed of FKG Consulting. How are you, Brian? Good, Trace. Good to see you. Good. Good to see you. Uh, this is our our dozen episode, number 12. Um, 12. And we are going to... Nobody thought about we'd it. make it past one, so... Right. Uh, we were just going to have one and see how many listens we could get to there. We've had a lot of guests uh, on on the show, um, and today we have one of my favorite people in the state of Oklahoma, uh, Dr. Keith Gaddy uh, from the University of Oklahoma. Well, Trace, it's good to be here, and the entire state will forgive you your poor taste, but it's a pleasure. You're one of my favorite people, too. There you go. My, my dad would make the joke, foremost leper in a leper colony, but I don't want to insult the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> it's my home. I love it. Love the people here. Um, but uh, really glad to have you here. We're going to you, – you helped um, introduce me to politics and a lot of what I really like about politics, which is stories and narratives and you know maybe looking back on – how things happened. I'll, I'll never forget the Southern politics class I took where you explained how um, Huey Long got the football bleachers built uh, for the for LSU and then uh, walking Lawton Childs and all those sorts of things. Um, and but now we're going to um, sometimes it's hard to look forward into into what's going on with politics. We'll do that here in a little bit. But I want to take us back, um, what, 14 years to 1994. And uh, we're going to talk about the 1994. A lot longer than that. 14 years? What? How? Yeah, it's 2018. So. Uh, All right. <laughs> and so that's where we do this error thing. We're <laughs> we all only wish that 1994 was 14 years ago. Yeah. Right? Is this yeah. where we played the Jason Aldean song, 1994? God, it's terrible. I'd say 2008 was a good year for me. I'm, I'm game for this. <laughs> um, okay. So can we fix that? And you can cut where. We can, but I think it's. <laughs> yeah, I think we should just keep rolling. This right, is good. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, uh, with with you, you were uh, not a math major, or, with, you know. So you know, my, Andy Rieger was the editor of the Norman Transcript, and he he told me very early on it was my first journalism job, and he said that those who can't do math do journalism, and those who can't do journalism do obits. Well, I tell you, I'm going to give you a Norman story in this real quick, and I'm real careful with numbers anymore. Uh, a couple of days ago, my daughter Cassidy, you know, she's at the university now, we're having dinner at Bellari up on the up on the roof, and we're sitting there, and who comes walking up but Calvin Steves, okay. right? Sure. With his lacrosse helmet, helmet, helmet and his newspapers. newspapers. for $5 and each. And, you know, Calvin, I, I never carry cash anymore, Right. I'm like, well, Calvin, I don't have any money. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to take a pass on a paper. All right. And I look at Cass and said, honey, you don't have any cash. And he said, well, I've got a 20. I said, Calvin, I'm sorry. I, just, I, don't, I, I don't have any small change to get a paper. He looks me dead in the eye and goes, don't you ever think I don't have change, professor. <laughs> <laughs> and he stands there and counts at $19 bills. Okay. So I was afraid we were just going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, until we got caught up. There so we here go. we are. There we go. Yeah. Well, so let's... math, I'm bad on math this week in general, but I've got a transcript. The, oh, well, there we go. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, I should have known that if I had you on this podcast, we would just get derailed talking about all sorts of things. So let's actually go well, so this would be 24 years back in time? Is yes. that right? That's how we yes. do that? All yeah. right. Bronx cheer for my math skills. Um, <laughs> you have to excuse me. I was only like nine years old, eight years old at the time. My main memory of 1994 was the OU baseball team winning the College World Series. So um, really everything else that happened in that year, uh, you know, uh, a little over my head. But um, you guys have a better recollection of that. So set the stage for our listeners uh, in the 1994 Oklahoma elections. Oh. Well, 1994 is the year I graduated from OU, so uh, Dr. Gaddy will be our much better expert on Did, politics. Were you even that. living here in 94? No, I was, st <laughs> I was still in New Orleans, actually living about five blocks from Huey Long's last house. But, uh, you know, nice. Huey, Huey went to OU, but we'll just, we'll, we'll make that the linkage and call it done. Okay. Okay. But yeah, well, you know, you know Brian, you think back, uh, David Walters was governor and was in the middle of a huge scandal over campaign finance and a variety of other issues and wasn't running for re-election, right? And you had just we had just seen term limits voted through. We had seen uh, uh, the three-quarter rule for increase in taxes voted through by the public, and there was this big conservative and evangelical pushback in the U.S. at the time, right? Right. 
And then we've got all these other things going on in the state also. Well, well, uh, you also not not just in in '94 uh, Oklahoma, but nationwide. I mean, yeah. that that was the year that you had the the wave across the country, uh, the contract with America, Newt mm-hmm. Gingrich, all that type of stuff uh, happened, and so you had this massive kind of wave going on everywhere, which really hit Oklahoma and hit Oklahoma pretty hard. And it's probably good for our listeners to remind our listeners who are used to the notion that Oklahoma is a uh, Republican-dominated state about what it looked like in 1994 in Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, you know, because, and to understand that, you go back to 1990, uh, David Walters, a friend of mine, had won the governorship as a Democrat at age 39 with 65% of the vote, beat Bill Price, a uh, Republican lawyer, former U.S. attorney who had prosecuted all the county commissioners back in the 80s. And uh, Democrats had swept everything down ticket. They had three-quarters of the seats in both legislative chambers, uh, four of six members of Congress and uh, one of two U.S. Senate seats. And there's this wave slowly building throughout 1993, pushing back against health care reform, pushing back against uh, the assault gun weapons ban that the Clintons were pushing for that they got through by, what, like two votes, pushing back against the tax increase that the Clintons put through. And there's this vulnerability that gets created in Oklahoma. Uh, the congressman from the 6th District, Glenn English, announces he's not he's resigning from Congress to take a lobbying position okay and that creates an open seat in CD6 which no longer exists but was basically western Oklahoma and a chunk of Oklahoma City and it's basically now CD3 it's CD3 the modern CD3 is the old six and so he announces that he is stepping down and there's a May special election and what happens is Frank Lucas a Republican state lawmaker wins that special election and he wins it in part based upon the application of what's called morphing technology. It was the first effort at applying this morphing where you would take your opponent in a commercial and transmogrify them into Bill Clinton while you narrated over the, over, the, um, over the visual. Ooh, nice. And they tried that out in that district and also in Kentucky, too, where, um, uh, where, where Bill Natcher had died and left an open seat. And those two seats went Republican, and that was the big warning shot. About a week later, David Bourne announces he's resigning the U.S. Senate because he is going to be president-designated of the University of Oklahoma. And that leaves that seat open. And now you've got this free-for-all where uh, Dave McCurdy and uh, Jim Enhoff, the congressman from Norman and Tulsa, respectively, jump into that Senate race. J.C. Watts is a corporation commissioner. He jumps into the congressional race as a Republican with opposition from another Republican by the name of Ed Apple. You've got this open governor's race, and the Democratic Party fragments because with Governor Walters not running, you've got Frank Keating as a Republican nominee, Jack Mildren, the lieutenant governor, the OU's quarterback in the game of the century against Nebraska, right? He's running, and Wes Watkins, a congressman from CD3, is running as an independent. That's right. So you've got yeah. a fractured, fractured vote there. Yeah, yeah. So you're going into the summer and the fall with this building wave and this evangelical mobilization going on on behalf of the Republican Party. Nationally. Nationally. But here in Oklahoma, where at the time three and four Oklahomans would tell you they went to church at least once a week. And it's just building and building here. And that's sort of the campaign environment is you've got this big Democratic legislative majority, all these seats being held, but you've got this disruption of retirements that take a lot of popular incumbents away and leave these seats open. And and Keating... Be ultimately wins, defeats Mildred and Watkins, and becomes the, what, the third person, uh, the third Republican to hold the governorship in the state of Oklahoma. Bellman had two terms, and then Bartlett? Uh, Bellman had a term, Bartlett had, Bartlett had a term, and, and so Frank's again, the right. third one, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, he, uh, Bell, the, Bellman went twice, right. yeah. And so, Brian, as you said, a lot of people, you know, my age and who's, who are tuning into politics now and things like that, view Oklahoma as solidly red for a long time, and it it really actually wasn't. It was, it was um, you know, very much the opposite. At the time, uh, there were 68 Democrats in the House of Representatives here and 37 senators. Uh, absolutely. And, and I, you know, at the risk of, of really stepping on myself here, we have a, a professor here that's talked about Southern politics forever. But, you know, Oklahoma, 
you know, I think you could draw a correlation between the southern states and Oklahoma and how the politics had been. And if you go yeah. look at those states now and see how they've all uh, shifted and trended yeah. back to the to or into Republican territory, you know, we were right in the middle of, of that shift along with, I think, the southern states uh, doing all of that. You know, I, I came into uh, lobbying several uh, years after that. Uh, my first year was 1999. And one of the things that I remember uh, that was powerful uh, by then Governor Keating was is that he had a um, he had a House Republican caucus he had enough numbers in the House Republican caucus to sustain a veto mm-hmm. and that was his first that was really the, the the power that I don't think any other previous Republican governor had so it gave him a little more leverage uh, in negotiations with uh, with Democrats and and they stuck together and uh, if, if, I, if I remember correctly uh, Frank Keating did not have a single veto uh, overridden the entire time he was governor because of that. That is absolutely correct. And it's funny, uh, for Democrats now, um, I don't know if you've had Joe Dorman through here yet, but at some point you probably will. Twice. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, Joe told me a couple of years back when he was running for governor, he said, if I can just get in, he said, I just need 34 Democrats in the House because Frank Keating showed us you can govern with 34 people. Right. You can do that. You can govern through veto with 34 people, and we've right. learned that lesson. But, uh, yeah. Well, and they weren't, you know, it's interesting. So we had this national, on just to take us back to 24 years again, uh, you know, that was the first time that Republicans gained control of U.S. Congress in, like, 50 years, right? Yeah, first time in 40 years, uh, yeah. Or was it 40 or 50? Yeah, 40. Okay. Um, and, again, can't do math. Um, but the on a, on a legislative district breakdown in the state of Oklahoma— you know, I th- were there 48 senators at that time, or were there still 52? 48. There 48. were 48, okay, in 1994. Yeah. Um, you know, you had 37. You went into that election with 37 of those seats held by Democrats. Now, granted, only 24 are up in any given year, so there's only 24 potential. After the election, Democrats still had 35 seats in the yeah. Senate, so only two of the 24 that were up flipped to Republican. In the House, Democrats went in with 68 seats uh, in the House— after the election, they had 65. So only three flipped to Republican. So to me, when I was kind of looking back at this and researching and, and not doing math, I, I thought it was interesting that while you had this massive shift across the country uh, where Democrats were losing, I believe the Speaker of the House in the state of Washington Yeah, lost. Tom Foley. Mm-hmm. Tom Foley got beat. The sitting Democratic Speaker of the House lost. And that's how big this wave was, because we had, you know, Hillary care and the attempt to, you know, the ghastly attempt to provide health care, you know, to everybody across the country. And then you had pushback on the taxes and you had just a lot of a a lot of opposition and a real big Republican wave from a legislative perspective in Oklahoma. You didn't really see that, even though Keating won. Mary Fallon uh, was elected lieutenant governor after serving in the Mm -hmm. House. Uh, Brenda Renault became labor commissioner. Um, uh, some guy named John Crawford became insurance commissioner. Um, and you had state school superintendent Sandy Garrett, who went on to serve for, for many years, barely won against Linda Murphy. Um, so this maybe is a good place kind of to transfer to that forward 24 years to where we are now is that well before you before you fast forward 24 years uh what happened in the attorney general well, that, right, okay. that's where i was going right. to get to is that so we had sandy we had sandy garrett in 1994 as a democrat barely beats linda murphy a gop nominee she just ran again and just lost to joy hoffmeister but in the attorney general's race uh democrat drew edmondson barely beat anybody Mike Hunter? Mike Hunter, who is now the current attorney general who's on the ballot now. So um, perhaps some of this speaks to, frankly, why uh, there seems to be a thirst for an outsider uh, in Oklahoma politics and maybe nationally uh, right now. But if we look at what's going on in 2018, what what do you guys see as similarities and what do you see as big differences um, in, in the climate? Because both of you know, 2018 certainly won't be a democratic wave of that proportion across the country, but there's a lot of unrest and there's a there's a, a move to shake up uh, not only the makeup of Congress, but certainly here in Oklahoma, there's a move to shake up um, what has been a largely Republican-dominated uh, uh, government over the past eight, ten years. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Brian, I'm really curious to get your take on what I'm about to say. And um, I want to loop back and note one thing, though. I used to say that the South began somewhere in the Okie Finokie Swamp of Georgia, and it is somewhere in the northwest corner of my backyard in Brookhaven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, Oklahoma is definitely a chunk of the South, uh, by and large. So it's no surprise it behaves the way it did. Um, yeah, I, you know, if we look back at what happened in 94, part of what we have to give credit to is that it creates the foundation for what would happen in the next 10 years as the Republicans grew into a majority legislative party. You get all these young Republicans that are motivated and activated. They've been socialized under Ronald Reagan and uh, George H.W. Bush. And then they see this incredibly vital movement to run in politics. And you get all these relatively young lawmakers stepping up. And one example I would point to is Thad Balkman, okay? Former state representative Former state from Norman, current judge. Yeah, who is, you know, Brian, I believe he is probably a contemporary of yours. He had mm-hmm. come through law school in the mid-'90s. Then he runs for the state house, gets elected beating Wallace Collins, uh, a, a union moderate Democrat, is in the legislature for a while, ends up getting beat eventually, and then has a comeback as a, as a state judge. But, you know, a lot of these guys that are in their, in their 20s or early 30s, often with law degrees, Republicans, small businessmen, very motivated, very active, but active in campaign politics, including these 94 and 98 campaigns, they become the backbone of the Republican legislative majority. Right. And in the meantime, the Democrats are running out their bench. And your typical Democratic candidate is a 68-year-old retired high school principal. Okay, and we all know how much we loved our high school principal, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, you've yeah. got this long period where the Democrats just don't have a lot of talent. Right? My my high school yeah. principal was actually married to the state representative, the Democratic state representative in Norman. But go on. Yeah, yeah. And so, okay. Sorry, Doctor well, Nations. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so you you look at all this, and now we're getting to the point where we've had twenty five years of this. And that big bump and that big wave has kind of petered out. And now we've got this next generation coming up that are in their 20s and early 30s. And a lot of them are Democrats. And they're running as Democrats, and they're starting to win. And there's a lot of talented uh, candidates out there running. The demographics of the electorate are changing. If you're a voter in Oklahoma under the age of 27, you're as likely to not be white as to be white. Okay? I mean, the demographics of the state are changing. It's Assuming voters turn out, it could ripple into the election as well. The big question mark I see right now is, and I think we need to fill this in, is what's happening right now that looks like a disruption? And is that disruption being dealt with enough by the Republicans in power to defuse the bomb that could go off in the state in the election? Be careful saying that word. We'll, we, we forgot to tease, by the way, our Easter egg. If you stay with us, Dr. Mm-hmm. Gaddy tells uh, the story of Jim Lemons, the uh, fictional political hero, uh, as well, but Brian, go ahead and answer that question. Yeah, no, I, I think all of those are, are excellent points, and I think that um, I think there are a lot of similarities. The, the other part that I think uh, that's happening, we're seeing really happen today with the, with the legislature. Uh, I think you see it in Donald Trump's numbers. I think you're going to see it in the gubernatorial race and their numbers. There is a real, you know, we have polarization in political parties, but there's a real polarization. I think even more than it's ever been between urban and rural in this state. Mm-hmm. And what we're really seeing in, in 1994, uh, you would have had the rural areas, by and large, represented by Democrats. Uh, the urban areas, uh, by and large, especially suburbs and all those represented by Republicans, you're seeing a, a pretty uh, stark shift. Uh, I think after this election, the Republicans are going to uh, control most of rural Oklahoma. But a lot of traditional Republican urban districts are trending Democrat, and I believe you're going to see that trend continue in this election. I think that uh, there's a very good chance that in the House and Senate that the Republican, the Democrats will pick up a handful of seats, and I expect those seats to li- largely be in Republican areas, uh, Republican districts in urban areas. And so I think it's a, it's a fascinating shift that's happening right now. I do think there is, it's an interesting for the Democrat Party right now. There's a lot of energy uh, inside the Democrat Party right now. Uh, I think with with Donald Trump in the White House, with the teacher walkout that happened uh, this past session. So there's a lot of those type of things that are going on that is that that are giving the Democrats energy. And the you know it's interesting as you were talking about the typical Reagan post Reagan kind of wave uh, Republican profiled candidate. What I'm seeing now, uh, in my opinion, the successful Democrat candidates 
are female and they are in urban areas mm -hmm. and they are they are dynamic candidates in urban areas and they're winning those and i think uh you know representative cindy munson here in oklahoma city kind of started a lot of that trend uh which tells you a lot it tells you that people who work really hard and do a really good job can still be competitive regardless of the district and she she was kind of ahead of her time but I think that there's going to be some districts that are going to follow suit in and around uh, Cindy Munson's district uh, this year uh, of female candidates that are going to do the same thing. I think it's inter to me, there's an interesting dynamic and we're kind of micro targeting it right now. But talking about Oklahoma City, you have a couple of traditional Republican Senate districts that one of them is in the heart of Nichols Hills that are absolutely in play for the Democrats this year with two female dynamic candidates. Cindy Munson, who I mentioned, is also uh, has a House district in and around that area. And then Kendra Horn is running mm -hmm. for CD5 against Steve Russell. And, um, you know, I don't know what the outcome of that race is, but I think it's going to be pretty co competitive for the first time in a while. And it's, it's interesting because this kind of energy of female progressive candidates, I think they have the ability to kind of lift all boats uh, in, in, the, in the urban areas. I think the question for statewide candidates is what's the rural areas look like and yeah. how how do you uh, kind of overcome uh, the rural rural wave i guess yeah and i think brian has really nailed this down trace and if you look at um if you're to go back 25 years ago and even 10 years ago uh rural oklahoma would be 10 points more democratic than the urban than the central urban counties uh, tulsa county oklahoma county cleveland county right. the big six the big six right now it's flipped now those counties are 10 points more democratic than the rural areas. So they've been going in opposite directions. And they passed each other sometime in the last decade. Barack Obama won the city of Oklahoma City twice. Everybody forgets that. He never carried a county in the state, but he won city of Oklahoma City twice inside the city limits. And that's rather, uh, to me, that's really very interesting. But you know, this analysis of women candidates and progressive candidates and urban change is very, very important. And you know, for Cindy Munson, um, yeah, you know, it's you see why she does well. She works hard. She's earnest, right? Yeah. She works hard. She's earnest, and she's got good people around her too. She hires really good, dedicated people, and the Democrats have used a lot of these these special elections as laboratories to test out their GOTV efforts and their message. And it's just a question of having talented bodies. If they have talented bodies and they train up some good operators, I mean, it used to be, you know, six, eight years ago in the state for the Democrats, it was basically Matt Latham and whoever he could find, okay? Right. That was it. <laughs> right. And they would do the best they could with what they had. But now, I really think they've been able to broaden their network and really put together a generation of really good activists and consultants that can work out. But it's interesting, yeah. too, because I think for them to prevail, is cert certainly on a statewide level or in mass, even mm -hmm. if you look, I think maybe CD5 in its urban core maybe is the 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 outlier here, but certainly yeah. on a statewide level or in a lot of major Senate seats, how do Democrats prevail when the majority of teachers in the state of Oklahoma are registered Republicans? How do they prevail when the majority of organized labor's uh, union members are Republicans? Well, you know, what you do is remember back when all the teachers and all the union members were Democrats— they would go off, people were going off and voting Republican also. So it's possible to appeal to people's interests and get them to flip, okay? In theory, and, people yeah. want to split the ballot? Yeah, I mean, if a party is not serving your interests, and in fact, they're punishing the, your interests, at some point in time, you're going to stand up on your hind legs and say, enough. And it's been argued that maybe what happened with the teachers, we're going to find out, we have time. But I'd like to go back to CD5 for a minute, because... You know, it used to be that Oklahoma County and Oklahoma City was split among three districts, okay? You had Congressional District 5 that was Ernest S. Took's old seat right. that took a chunk of the city and ran all the way up to suburban Tulsa, okay, right. went up to Bartlesville. You had Congressional District um, 3, actually. Which, which ran to East Oklahoma City, got a bunch of the African-American community, and then and went, went to Poto. And then went, <laughs> right, well, no, I thought that one went uh, to the Panhandle. That's six. Oh, that's six. That's oh, six. I'm sorry. And then two goes, the uh, no, it's four. Four comes in. Two doesn't come in. Four comes in and picks up um, uh, picks up uh, Tinker, which right. it still does to this day. So you had the county split in three directions, right? There had been talk about bringing two in and the redistricting in 2002. That was hilarious, trying to explain to the judge why you didn't want to do that when she was making the map. But another story, another time. The... Um, but, you know, the, um, when you constitute this new district, the heart of it is Oklahoma County, except for Tinker, okay? And then two counties to the south and east, right? So you, so, um, 
Seminole and Potawatomi. Seminole and Pot, yeah. And so, you know, Seminole and Potawatomi, they're just kind of sitting off here, and they're a small chunk by population. But if you look at this district that Steve Russell's been winning, um, you know, Steve Russell actually has been running remarkably below radar as a lawmaker from Oklahoma, considering how high profile he was when he came in. Coming out of his service in the Gulf, you know, his role in the corralling of Saddam Hussein, his state Senate tenure, and then his run for Congress and the way that he won that primary and runoff. You know, Steve has never really been hard pressed in a general election, but he's had powerful electoral wins. And if you look, he's never been tied to controversial legislation. He's never been out there with controversial statements. He's low key, but he's also been building strong network. He's a building an insider reputation on the Hill, right? right. Yeah. As a serious He just lawmaker. got a new chairmanship um, uh, in the in the House. I think it was a military. We'll look that up later. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so, he, so he's picked up the significant subcommittee chairmanship. You know, it's he's doing the things you expect a long-term lawmaker in Oklahoma to do. He's doing the kind of stuff that somebody like David, Dave McCurdy or Ted Risenhoover would have done in the long term. But CD5 and CD1 in Tulsa are demographically changing faster than anywhere in the state. They're trending democratically faster than anywhere else in the state. And you have to wonder, is Kendra Horn, if well-financed, if pushing aggressively and with a lot of organization underneath her, does that create the, the prospect for an upset in November? It's a long shot, but it's one that we ought to be analyzing and talking about. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, and I think, in, in, you know, to carry CD5 out, I think what's fascinating is that if you look at CD5, I think there's a real opportunity for an upset this year. Uh, what's interesting, though, if you go to 2020 and not knowing what the presidential politics are going to be like, typically a Republican at the top of the ballot would help the Republican nominee mm -hmm. in CD5 uh, do well. Then we head into redistricting. So yeah. what happens to CD5 at that point in time? If the Republicans are able to hang on uh, for this election and the next election, will they make sure and try to shed some of that demographic uh, changes that have been, are very positive for the, for the uh, Democrats yeah. uh, and try to make that a more secure seat for Republicans? And I think that's kind of sets up a new battle in redistricting. It's a good thing we have this guest here. First, let me say Russell uh, was uh, named the chairman of the National Security House Subcommittee. Okay. Um, but uh, you said redistricting. I don't. That's a word that either ex it used to excite you, Doctor Gaddy, but now yeah. does it stress <laughs> you out? Oh no! Now that I'm retired from the business and working on a book in that space, I'm very happy. And actually, the day that we're recording, the state of Wisconsin has had yet new litigation dropped again over partisan gerrymandering. I had a text message from Doug Poland, the lawyer for the Democrats up there this morning, that they're filing again, and they've made an expedited appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we are, are you a, a witness or anything in this? I have just... no role in this except to sit on the sidelines and be smarmy. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but I assume my amicus brief will probably be making its way in into that appeal again. And, um, you know, it's uh, no, I'm done in that business. But, you know, I, I worked uh, I worked for the legislature in the O2 redistricting. And in 2011, uh, which uh, the O2 tradition was litigated and created the current congressional map for all intents and purposes. So let's give every, yeah. if let's people who may not know a ton about how redistricting is done, when it's done, et cetera, et cetera. Following each 10-year census, um, every state is obligated to come up with this new maps that usually goes into effect and is approved what the two the second the election year afterwards yeah here it is in a nutshell i'll be brief the census is, is conducted in the spring of years ending with a zero okay later that year data are distributed to the states okay and the states have an what will happen is the number of seats in the u.s house will be reapportioned among the 50 states oklahoma used to have six representatives they went down to five in 2001 Slim possibility we could go back up to six again, but we're just not quite growing fast enough relative to the nation to get that sixth seat back. But, you know, still believe in a place called hope, right? Well, <laughs> the, um, sorry, the, um, so what happens is the state gets the data and they have to equalize population across all the congressional districts to an exacting level. Okay. Right. And the state legislative districts have to be draw, redrawn with relatively equal populations, usually within a range of about plus or minus five percentage points, justified by some neutral policy. Okay. So you can't do it for partisan advantage, but if you have some general policy like we don't want to split counties up needlessly, you can have some population variation. Then the shenanigans begin. 
Shenanigans. I love shenanigans, yeah. So then you get into the issue of do you have to deal with voting rights issues and creating uh, minority opportunities in the districts? Can you get partisan advantage? How are you going to take care of your incumbents? And it's funny because the scenario Brian described in the next remap for the U.S. House is the Republicans may, if the Republicans control the entire process, they could go back and in an effort to bolster CD5, they could actually end up cracking up Oklahoma County again and putting in a map that looked like the kind of map the Democrats were arguing for in 2002. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the one thing that I've noticed in all of these fights on uh, uh, redistricting and everything else is that they become very bipartisan in nature, meaning who's ever in charge yeah. <laughs> is always trying to draw the map to their benefit, obviously. Well, we, yeah. saw, we saw that yeah. in 2002. I mean, look at the the, the Senate district uh, that, that Paul Rosino has that stretches from you know basically right. Colorado to Arkansas, <laughs> right. right? But yeah. around South Oklahoma City, it has you know all those things. You you have um, is it House District Forty One? It's the John Inns seat. Right. He's termed mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. It starts in Enid and basically follows uh, U.S. Seventy Four down, yeah. um, down down uh, or State Highway Seventy Four, whichever yeah. it is, down to Oklahoma City. Well, former Representative Bobby Cleveland's district, which kind of looks like a boomerang. Nice. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, are, there are all sorts of beautiful pieces of artwork uh, in that remap. Uh, that was that really was a bipartisan gerrymander, though, in the House. In the House, both parties got together and kind of made a deal on that map to protect incumbents. The Senate map, my understanding, was drawn by state Senate leadership with a, with a singular goal, okay? Which was to... Win as many seats as possible. Yeah, because yeah. the Senate was the, in the state was the last uh, bastion of Democrat control to fall. Yeah. Um, after they had Nancy Riley switch to be a Democrat, and it was tied for a while and all that sort of stuff. And now it, I think they got down to six, and now they're up to I think it's a eight thirty nine forty eight, I believe forty eight right. now. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I tell you what, just on the Senate, real quick, Rob Standridge should really be happy he's not up for reelection this year because that West Norman seat of his would definitely be in play if he were up right now. People are fired well, up. Well, if you look, at, I mean, if you look at his vote choices, he looks like the kind of lawmaker, to no small extent, who got beat in the primary season this year or who's in trouble right now. Right, right. And, man, you do not – there are certain things you don't screw with in Norman, okay? And education's Education. one of them. The second thing you don't do in Norman is you don't hide. Yeah. Okay? It, Rob, Rob has got some cultivating and some work to do between now and 2020. I've got a I've, I've got a question that I would like to ask, and first to say that uh, just to just to show you how Dr. Gaddy is really in the spirit of how we got here, and starting with 1994, he he uses the hope uh, a place called Hope Reference, which half of our listeners probably will not know right. that is a, a Clinton kind of reference. Uh, but it's where he was uh, born, right? Yeah. Or was it where he was raised? Uh, he was he was born in Hope, but he was actually raised in Hot Springs. Okay. Yeah. So, so he the, feels your pain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but he, but here's what I guess I would say. I think most people believe that the environment in Oklahoma right now is a, is a far more favorable Democrat environment than it has been in a long time. I think most people believe that the energy is behind uh, Democrats. Uh, we had. Uh, what happened. We talked about demographic switches. We also talked about what happened in the teacher walkout. Yeah. We've seen what, what has happened in some primary elections. We've had some special elections in which Democrats are winning these special elections. All signs point towards something kind of brewing there for Democrats. But then this little piece of information comes out this week, and this is where I want Dr. Gaddy to kind of shed some light on what he thinks about this. Uh, the, the state election board put out uh, uh, this week right. their party registration change information. Uh, and as of August 31st, we had 18,600 people switch parties. I was expecting to read this and for it to show a real net gain for Democrats uh, in, in this state. What it shows is, is that the top five party changes, number one, half of that 18,000 number were of 9,163 were Democrats who switched to become Republicans. And then right below that, which is even almost more surprising to me, 3,503 independents switched to become Republicans. So how do we reconcile that with what I just said before that? Yeah, and you know the thing is, we don't know what motivated that change. You know, if we go back to 2014, we saw a lot of switches going on into the GOP, 
and a lot of these were teachers and teacher families going in to vote against Janet Berisi, right? But this is something we've been seeing consistently for years in Oklahoma is the net switch keeps going to the GOP. Uh, and it may be that people are, okay, the, the most hopeful interpretation for the Democrats is people are making this choice so they can go into the Republican Party and have an, have an influence on where, ele where elections of consequence occur, right? right? They're going in there so they can affect primary nominations. Right. So that's, again, that's the most, the most generous interpretation is that these are all a bunch of stealth progressives, right, who are just slipping in there. But the thing is, if these are older voters, if these are older voters who are heavily white and heavily nationalistic and have much higher approval rating of Donald Trump, they may be just finally shedding their Democratic label and porting their way over. Well, and if you look at far yeah. southeastern Oklahoma that has, in recent statewide elections, has been voting heavily Republican, mm -hmm. even though I think in McCurtain County, still two to one Democrats outweigh the number of Republicans, or at least did before, for all I know, a thousand of those um, switches were, were down in, in, in Idabel. Well, that um, assumes if you bring out the dead also. Okay? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's also big. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my point being is that it, in some ways, uh, you know, it, I think maybe the next most generous interpretation for Democrats could be the idea that, well, these are just people finally solidifying that their party affiliation for how they've been voting for the last eight, 10 years. Yeah, and I think that's what it's kind of makes the governor's yeah. race interesting because, uh, again, uh, southeast Oklahoma, you know, when I, when I, for, for all these years, southeast Oklahoma was referred to as Little Dixie for mm -hmm. Democrats. I mean, that was, that was, the highest Democrat registration was in was still was uh, in southeast Oklahoma, and still to this day, it's a slow burn to switch over there. I think it probably still is the the area that has the highest uh, uh, Democrat registration. But when you look at Donald Trump's approval na uh, numbers, when you look at Donald Trump's performance, uh, it's fascinating because it is completely the opposite. Uh, Donald Trump is very popular in southeast Oklahoma. Uh, uh, Kevin Stitt won in the runoff election some of those southeastern counties with like 74 percent of the vote yeah so it's very fascinating now when you then when you transition this into the general election and you're trying to figure out uh the path for uh, uh, uh drew edmondson who clearly is in this race and is very competitive and has a chance to win this race the one interesting part is i wonder uh, dr gaddy when i listen to you talk if whether or not we're maybe just a little bit on the front end of this Democrat wave for this reason. You talked about the bench. You talked about all mm -hmm. those kind of things. The Democrats are starting to churn out some really, really good legislative candidates. But when you look at the statewide races right now and you look at who filed for the Democrats, Drew Edmondson really has to turn everything out on him and his name alone. And yeah. He doesn't have any coattails around him helping helping there. So they, they haven't filtered up to, I guess, those statewide races yet of, of fielding really good uh, candidates. I mean, it's, it really is thin in between, and it's not to the detriment of the candidates who are running. They're running. Right. But these are, I mean, Anastasia Pittman is a state lawmaker, but there's, there's not a tremendous breadth of experience or high name profile there. There's not a lot of wealth there. Kevin Stitt is a first-time candidate, but he brings amazing business experience to the table, okay? And as much as progressives may latch on to every single thing he's done or said that is off on the far right wing of our political, um, of, you know, of, of American politics, that's not really that far out of line with a lot of Oklahoma. I don't think it scares a lot of Oklahoma voters off. Right. And, you know, you know, and, you know, for, for, you know, for, uh, for General Edmondson, you know, he's got a, do, he's got to motivate a, 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 a body of voters that are a generation and a half removed from him and indicate that he's going to be there. And that may not be the easiest lift in the world. I'm, I wonder if it, yeah, it's funny. Okay. Look at the history of Democrats elected governor in Oklahoma. Brad Henry was 38. David Walters was 39. David Warren was 33. J. Howard Edmondson was 31, Right. Right, uh, George Nye, who was in his fifties by the first time he got elected governor, was a lieutenant governor at thirty. Right, we have a tendency in the state when Democrats win, they're somewhat, they're 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 relative to the entire state, um, but they're also young, 
Edmondson is 71 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, you know, if Drew Edmondson wins the governorship, he defies the profile of Democratic of a Democratic governor and actually defies the profile of most governors. Most you, You'd be hard-pressed. I think he would be the oldest man ever elected governor of the state of Oklahoma if he wins. I'd like to go back and check that. How, right? Yeah, it depends probably Bellman, how old he was when he came. Yeah, but I mean, for, for first, for right. initial oh, election. For right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. and so this is interesting too, right? If you, you were talking about the changing demographics of Oklahoma yeah. in terms of the Democratic Party. And Brian, you were saying that Democrats have a lot of, um, you know, exciting or, or uh, talented uh, legislative candidates who are freshmen, excuse me, or sophomores or something like that in their terms. Um, outside of Edmondson, if you look at the statewide candidates who are, are running for Democrats, three of them are African-American. Mm-hmm. And Senator Pittman uh, from Oklahoma City, Kimberly Fobbs uh, out of Tulsa, and Mark Miles, an attorney here in Oklahoma City as well. So you, you see that sort of shifting toward more what you would think in sort of a, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of Mississippi, that's typically Alabama, um, where you have a very strong um, presence of, of, of African-American leadership across those uh, seats. Doesn't mean they win, yeah. um, but it, it certainly is a little different than in years past where you would have had your, what did you say, your, your constant 68-year-old um, former right. high school principal yeah. or former yeah. lawmaker, you know, Senator, we talked about John Sparks, or we mentioned him in the Easter egg, if you if you listen up, but, you know, he chose not to run. Um, Scott Inman, uh, for whatever reason, uh, wound up not re- running. Eric Proctor did not run. Emily Virgin, who's been on the podcast, did not run for statewide. So there, there were sort of folks who have n- not been elected, uh, you know, in the legislature, much less even statewide before on that. The second thing is, I went to the election board, which has done some great things. By the way, you can change your voter registration, or you can update that, um, on, like if you move or something like that, online now. So that's really cool, ok.gov forward slash elections. But they have some data from January of 2018. So it's not; it doesn't include all those things that just changed, like you said, Brian. But um, Drew Evanson was attorney general in uh, Muskogee. He was the Muskogee County area. Uh, attorney general D- district attorney D- D- district that's what i said yeah i'm sorry uh, i don't i can't add or subtract or do anything it's friday at five o'clock um so you know if you look at muskogee uh their voter registration they had thirty-five thousand seven hundred total uh people registered uh in in muskogee county as of january 15th 2018 19,400 and some of those were Dem- are democrats uh, 11,290 of those are Republicans. They've got 50 Libertarians and 4,900 uh, Independents. To me, I think we'll be able to tell a lot by what happens in Muskogee County. Mm-hmm. Can Drew Edmondson, who has ties in that community deeper than basically any other politician is going to, um, can he hold serve in a county where Democrats still have a large uh, gap in voter registration, a large positive gap for them in voter registration. Meanwhile, he's banking on turning out Oklahoma County and Tulsa County very heavily. And in Oklahoma County, you have 145,000 Democrats and 173,000 Republicans and 66,000 independents. In Tulsa County, you have 112,000 Democrats and 169,000 Republicans, 50,000 independents. Yeah. So it's weird that we're talking about how the future of the Democratic Party is in these urban areas. Uh, and that the that basically Republicans have taken over the rural areas, but the voter registration still hasn't caught up to show that right. in any capacity. Yeah. So you may have a lot of people in Oklahoma County who are registered Republicans, but have moderated to the yeah. point where now they're more open to an Edmondson uh, campaign versus you may have a bunch of people in Muskogee County or um, – uh, you know, other eastern Oklahoma counties where the, the they're registered Democrats still, but they have uh, voted Republican for the last three, four election cycles. Yeah, you know, I also wonder, you know, related to that, where the level of sophistication of the voters, you're not going to overturn the Republican majorities in the state cha- legislative chambers. It's arithmetically impossible in the Senate. It cannot be done. Right. Um, and in the House, it's a very, very long shot. But what's remarkable is no one's talked about Fallon fatigue. Mary Fallon has the lowest approval ratings of any governor in the United States. She's had, what, 14% or something like that? Right. You're saying that Kevin Stitt isn't calling, begging for her endorsement? <laughs> no, but it's, the thing is, though, but it's you, know, you wonder at what point do you hang Mary Fallon around his neck and make the argument 
that you have you need to have a governor who can bring a small body of Democrats and a large body of Republicans to the table together and govern. And instead of having a hostage situation like the one that was created by the now largely destroyed Platform Caucus, what you do is you create a situation where you have a centrist Democratic governor who can work across the aisle on these few areas, bring those Demo- hold those Democrats in line, bring the Republicans over. You've got good leadership in the in the in the in the state house and the state senate, and I, you know, I'm, you know, every time I do one of these, I always point out I'm really fond of Treat and of Eccles, okay. And I think these guys do a, did a really good job of managing their caucuses and pulling together huge numbers of Republicans to do stuff Republicans would never otherwise do. You know, taxes, policy, right? Um, you know, are the voters sophisticated enough to grab hold of an appeal that basically says? You know, after eight years of unified government, after eight years of Mary Fallon, are you really ready to take, really ready to roll the dice on a guy you don't really know a lot about, who's really out there on the really out there on the far conservative fringe? I mean, I'm not saying this is who Stid is. I'm saying this is how it would frame. This is what his message? Yeah, message yeah. would be. Why don't we get some adults in there who know how to govern instead of people who are just worried about being popular or who are just doing this because they've been called to it. Well, and I think yeah. Evanson has in some ways tried to do that. Um, you know, when when Stitt and Cornette were in the runoff, um, you know, back when we did our last podcast, uh, Evanson's whole takeaway was uh, both of these candidates sound just like Mary Fallon. Um, and and that, was the, that was the statement. At the press conference Evanson had where Boren endorsed him and they talked about an education quote-unquote plan, um, where we where we discussed how many tests are mandated in the state of Oklahoma, um, that was an amusing moment. Uh, but you know, his the message was a little different. Was uh, Oklahoma can't afford to guess? Uh, that was at least what Boren said. Um, and the idea that that Stitt is an unknown. I don't know that either of those messages have been uh, put out there forcefully enough, or effectively enough, or broadly enough, um, or in front of enough eyeballs to where that's affecting the narrative and so let's take one kind of i want to ask you guys a final question then we'll do our final thoughts we're kind of getting up there in minutes um does edmondson have enough firepower to get to the finish line uh he you know i've heard multiple people talk about the relatively low cash on hand considering that he didn't have a really strong primary he didn't go on air um you know maybe he's bought a bunch of ads up ahead of time and bought a bunch of space already and that means lower cash on hand i don't really know but while there's this atmosphere that you talked about, Brian, that for Democrats seems as close to what Republicans had in 1994 as, as, as Democrats here could imagine, without the coattails, is there enough, are there enough guns in that, wait, are there enough bullets in that gun? Which goes in which? Is, it, is there enough steam in this train? In the train, in the train? Yeah. Uh, I think there is. I mean, I think that uh, Edmondson, number one, I think that he is a, a person who is competent and experienced. He's run statewide before. He knows how to win statewide. He is um, surrounding himself with people who, uh, ironically, going back to 1994, would have been a lot of people that were in government back in 1994 running things. They know what they know how to do this. They, they know how to get there. I think he'll have enough money to wage a competitive race. Uh, I think that he's raising a decent amount of money. The question is, is that I don't think he'll have as much money as Kevin Stitt. Uh, I think Kevin Stitt, with his ability to self-finance, uh, plus, it's interesting, I've had this conversation with some some people, and, and what a lot of people may not, uh, some of our listeners may not realize is, is that Kevin Stitt really just now after the runoff is realizing the big Republican money. Because uh, when this thing started off, the big time business Republican money went to Todd Lamb. And then that wouldn't meet with him. Then that big time money transitioned over to Mick Cornette. And so he's defied all of that up until this point and is still there without that help. Now, it's, it's it's just extra gravy for him, I think, and he's going to have a ton of money. I think he's going to have a lot of assets in order to do it. Uh, I think what you described, uh, Dr. Gaddy, is I think that's exactly what Drew Edmondson will do. I think he'll try to wrap Mary Fallon around his yeah. neck as much as humanly possible. I think the the if I were Drew Edmondson, I would have preferred to run against anyone other than the guy who's never held office before. Yeah. And in 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 this 
environment, and the, and we say that in this environment, the truth of the matter is, you, you brought up David Walters, uh, never had held elective office before, and was a Democrat nominee in uh, 1986, uh, out of nowhere, at that time was 35 years old. Yeah. Uh, and so people in this state bet on the future. They really yeah. do. And so I think the issue, in my opinion, and the, the other thing I'm going to say, and I'll quit rambling on, the other thing is, Drew Edmondson is running in a in a time period that's a little different than what he ran before. The Democrat Party in Oklahoma is not the same Democrat Party as it was in the early 90s. It is not so much the moderate centrist party that it once was. Uh, progressive have, have pre- creeped in here. And I think for um, Edmondson, how do you thread that needle? Because I think if this was 20 years ago, Edmondson would have been really beating the bushes in rural Oklahoma. He would have been the centrist, moderate type of guy, and he would have probably uh, not fared very well in Oklahoma City or Tulsa. I think this year he will probably perform the best, in my opinion, in Oklahoma County. Um, and and I don't think he's going to fare very well in rural Oklahoma. Uh, and, I, and I think he would have much preferred for what I just said right there to run against a Mick Cornette, even though, yes, Mick Cornette, some moderate Mick Cornette voters probably will shift over to Drew Edmondson. I'm not sure if it's enough to overcome what I think Stitt will have strength in the rural areas. And then him being from Tulsa also will help him help him out there. So I, I think the answer to your long-winded answer, I think Drew Edmondson will run a, a competent race. I think he'll run a competitive race. I think he can win this race, and I think he'll have the resources. The question is, all the things that, that I have stated, I think he's running against an opponent that aren't the type of opponents you like running against. They are people that don't have baggage in their political careers uh, and people like betting on fresh faces and all those type of things. And to me, that's Edmondson's biggest hurdle. Yeah, because I think Edmondson, you know, I mean, you could frame him as he was first elected to office in 1976, 78. Well, um, and you say when, that when was born and, and elected were, governor? Seventy six, seventy four. When uh, when Kevin said, I think was less than one year old. <laughs> That's right. And and, and you know, uh, it's like the optics. You, yeah. you had this picture here the last couple of weeks of David Bourne, which is a big deal. He hasn't endorsed, hardly ever endorses anybody uh, on these type of races. Endorsed Obama. Uh, <laughs> uh, endorsed Drew Drew Edmondson, and you know the optics of that two old school Democrat politicos from yesteryear standing on stage shaking hands versus the guy who's never held political office before. People in this state they like they they like that you know independent yeah. streak that makes them feel independent I think going against the Yeah but you know we have to get used to a new phrase in this populist banker Okay, yeah. I mean, <laughs> populist I mean, millionaire banker, populist yeah. millionaire banker. I mean, there has never been such a creature in human creation before. I but I mean, it's that's it, that is what still, he is. Yeah, but that's yeah. the thing with this. I don't know. I don't know really what he's. He we knew what he did to get out of the the primary, right? In some ways, I think the argument could be he doesn't. As long as he does nothing, he does well in November. Well, and this is a cool thing about executives when they run for public office and executives when they're in public office. Uh, this is the cool thing about Mitt Romney is they're not heavily anchored to ideology when it comes to determining what they see as a principle. They're more about problem solving. They're more about finding a way to success, which means they'll trim their ideological sales as needed. And what was neat about Stitt during the runoff period was how he, as he came to understand the limitations of being Oklahoma governor, because it's a weak office, okay, it is not a strong governorship. He started talking about other things that a lot of us want to talk about in Oklahoma, which is reforming the executive, reforming the state constitution, visiting the way we've organized government locally and statewide, and talking about change in that space. Um, Here's the thing to think about, though, uh, real quick. If you look back at Democrats running for governor when they're not incumbents, going back to, uh, to 1994, okay, the typical Democratic vote is between 38 and 44 percent of the vote. Okay, they never get above 44 in the open seat. They're never below 38. They're right around 43. Okay, that's what Henry won with. Yeah, and Henry in the second time, you know, Henry blows Ernest Hooks doors off and wins 74 or 77 counties, right? But um, so we know there's a logical ceiling out there based upon an ordinary turnout model that's probably around 45 percent. 
The trick is how far above that can you get? And this gets to the second question, which is for people who are discomforted with Kevin Stitt, they're probably not going to switch all the way over to, to Drew. They can go and park themselves on Chris Powell, libertarian candidate. And, you know, Chris is a, a perfectly reasonable candidate, a perfectly reasonable man running for office. But libertarians are always capped at about four points, barring anything else. But when you've got really divisive, nasty campaigns in the state, those independent libertarian candidates can get up around 9 or 10% of the vote. Well, and I think that that speaks to something that I just want to throw out there. I think it's—we've yeah. done a lot of political debates and stuff like that. I think it's an embarrassment that— uh, Powell's not being invited to more of the debates that they're doing. Mm-hmm. The Oklahoman's doing a debate and didn't invite him. You know, it's sort of pathetic. He they, has uh, been, they, he has been invited. They have invited Joe Exotic if he were right. Would invited. they have invited Joe Exotic? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Well, uh, that, that depends on his bail bondsman, right? Th- yeah. there, we, <laughs> there we go. Um, on that note, uh, gentlemen, give you thirty seconds each for a final thought, and then uh, don't don't be afraid, listeners, stick around for the epic Jim Lemons saga. Which of you has 30 seconds first? Uh, here's the thing. you got to run them and you got to count them, so I think we just need to watch. Yeah, I think it'll be a fascinating. I'll say this. After being through what I would call a lot of really boring elections over the last decade in this state where there just has not been a lot of competition, it's fun to have uh, races this year that, that are compelling and interesting and um, looking forward to see what happens in November. Sounds good. Do the right thing, Oklahoma, and invite Chris Powell to debate. Actually, for what it's worth, October 18th, the gubernatorial forum at University of Oklahoma, sponsored by the Carl Albert Center. All three candidates are invited. Oh, boom. Very, there very you nice. go. Jim, Jim Lemons, is he invited? It, yeah. <laughs> we'll find. I, I'm sure he'll be present in some form or fashion. There we go. Thank, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for listening to us as we talk about 1994. Go to, uh, well, write, like us, rate us, review us. Um, this has been another episode. And we took it back to 1994. So let's, we, let's tell the Jim Lemon story. Okay. And then I want to know your perception of Jim Lemons. I'll give the background. Brian, I don't know if you knew this. Bryce, do you remember this? You're, you're not even, you don't even have a microphone. So, um, so Jim Lemons, back when I was first interested in, in, in political science, politics, those sorts of things, Dr. Gaddy was actually my freshman year uh, political science introduction teacher uh, or professor. And um, in addition to keeping me out of jail, he sort of inspired me to pay attention to a lot of uh, things about politics. And in the 2006 elections, um, I was paying a lot of attention to yard signs and thinking, you know, do these really work? You know, do yard signs really determine who wins a race? And the Senate District 16 race was open. It was between Sparks, Derek Ott, and who was the third person? I don't recall. Uh, so we, you created one. Right. So we, yeah. we create, So we created a character, a fictional character named Jim Lemons, who was supposed to be like sort of like Festivus for the rest of us. He was supposed to be for all the people who don't vote. That if only like 35% of the public votes, Jim Lemons is for the other 65%. And what was your first reaction? Well, you know, the thing is, it was great because the sign has nice colors. I still have a Jim Lemon sign and a Jim Lemon sticker on my laptop to this day. But what was neat is uh, you hit perfectly the frame of the suburban Republican campaign that year. Uh, family, freedom, etc. Yeah, well, our, our slogan was America, families, etc. Etc. That's uh, right. America, families, etc. So yeah. you actually made up signs. And made everything? up, made up signs. Yes. Um, maybe I'll put one of these in the post that we have for it. But that we and Josh McBee, who's the other co-owner and editor of Nondoc, um, was my partner in this. It, I don't think it was a crime, but we started putting them up all over town, and yes. um, I got connected with uh, Shabon Marshall. And he, he got us the transport workers union to print these things. And I didn't, you know, I'm like 21 years old, 22 years old. So they've got the bug on them. They, <laughs> have, the, they have the union made bug. It says America families, et cetera. And it vote Jim Lemons. And, um, you know, it was like make lemonade was the original sign, right? Like if nothing else. And so uh, to sort of sum this up, we put them out all over town and people started calling the newspapers and um, I was the editor of the OU paper at the time and like we never mentioned it you know ethically we never mentioned it or anything but it became this whole you know kind of oh is it is, is this unethical of Savage and McBee to have done this you know he's has he brought shame to student media and so they called this uh, publications board meeting and um, to, to like discuss whether I had 
you know, really messed this up. And some, some journals and faculty and people were really mad about this whole thing. And um, they eventually determined that um, they couldn't fire me because that would probably be a, an infringement of my First Amendment rights. Um, but then the funniest part was when uh, then dis, uh, CD4 Democratic candidate Hal Spake showed up and in the public comment portion of the meeting, he um, just started railing on how the Norman transcript covered Jim Lemons more than they did his campaign. <laughs> and somebody had to stop him from the board and say, I, th- that, this is not really the forum to discuss that issue, sir. <laughs> and so that was my, that was the story. Yeah, and you know, I'd like to say it's the only time that trouble like this has been made, but I mean, that April, I still had Sooner Politics back then, and on April Fool's Day, I had written this column indicating that I was going to resign from the university and run for governor. And somebody took it seriously, and I started getting these phone calls. Are you announcing? And I had all these hits on the website. I was like, read carefully. Read the platform, which entails excavating the Red River all the way up to create mountains out near Enid. So even more like Colorado? No, this is not serious. Renaming the state XL Homo so we can be excellent instead of just okay. You know, it's... You, know, you can really reel people in in the state sometimes with this stuff. It's a lot of fun. I yeah. love the, the, those, the, those platforms, though. Oh, yeah. Who's not for that? Who's not for Mountains and Enid? Exactly. Yeah, the Mountains of Enid. This, yeah. yeah, this would make a wonderful romance novel. We should write this. <laughs> well, I think Jim, if Jim Lemons had you know, been alerted, he would have easily adopted this platform as opposed to expand his two main goals, which as the most conservative candidate uh, were, one, more outside urination, and two, more daylight savings time. Just keep rolling the clock uh, onward and onward. So with that, I think that's all the public needs to know about you and my shenanigans. Uh, to date, yes. How We Got Here is a presentation of FKG Consulting in association with Nondoc.com. Produced and edited by Bryce Holland. For more information, visit fkgconsulting.com and Nondoc.com.